1: listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk.
2: Today is Friday, June 23rd, 2023. I'm Jason Breifel from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, and I'm so excited to welcome to Fed Talk the authors of the new book, Bridge Builders, How Government Can Transcend Boundaries to Solve Big Problems, with Bill Eggers and Don Kettle. Uh, Bill Eggers is the Executive Director of the Deloitte Center for Government Insights and a Fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. He's the author or co-author of numerous books, including The Solution Revolution and If We Can Put a Man on the Moon, both from Harvard Business Review Press. Thanks for being with us, Bill.
0: It's great to be with you
2: today, Jason. Uh, And uh, our other guest today is Don Kettle. He is a professor emeritus, a former dean of the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland, and a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. He was previously the Sid Richardson professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, he's also the author of numerous books. Most recently, they include The Divided States of America and Can Governments Earn Our Trust? Welcome, Don.
3: Jason, so good to be with you.
2: All right, guys. Well, I am super excited for our conversation. I'm super excited to read this book, um, which came out last month on May 23rd. And we're really happy that you've stopped here on Fed Talk uh, on your initial book tour. And, and just to set our stage for our conversation today, uh, first, what, what led you to, after writing lots of books independently, to work together on this project?
3: Well, we started, I think, uh, back with uh, conversations we've had over the years. Bill and I have known each other for a long time, but uh, I was lucky enough for Bill to have a business meeting that he had to go to in Austin, and we were able to arrange a lunch, and we sat there and started talking about the concerns that we have And the more we talked, the more that we knew that we had something we wanted to say. And by the end of the lunch, we ended up with a plan for the book, which we thought was not only the way that we can, as we say in the subtitle, transcend boundaries to solve big problems so that it's a way to try to get at crises, but also increasingly the way we need to do everything in government, because more and more of government simply doesn't fit the traditional mindsets that we often bring to government programs.
0: And I would add that, you know, Don and I, between us, we've been working in this world of public management for more than 75 years combined, or probably close to 35 books together. And a lot of our focus has been on implementation over the years, which, you know, I believe that it's an area where we don't have nearly enough focus. There's so much and work on policy and policy analysis and think tanks and so on. And we both really focused on the implementation part, which is which is often times I would say it is both misunderstood. Uh, sometimes it's even ignored, and uh, and it's so incredibly important. And when you look at implementation today, you have to focus on the fact that most of what government does today it does through a more networked approach it, involving uh, private partners, nonprofit partners, uh, the academia, social enterprises, and so it's a it's a web uh, of organizations and that makes the implementation a, a lot more complex and there just hasn't been a lot of focus on that so we really wanted to look at how is government actually delivering services today trying to address big problems. And how can that be improved? And how can government leverage the hundreds of billions of dollars that are being spent uh, by the private sector, foundations, nonprofits in terms of trying to promote public value and really focus on purpose? So that's really the purpose of this book to provide a real practical manual with a lot of inspiring stories of these government bridge builders that we talk
2: about. Thanks, Bill and Don, for, for helping set the stage. And, and I think it's really interesting and great that it seems like there's a variety of books right now coming out focused on this implementation and delivery conversation. I happened to go uh, to Jen Palka's uh, a book event at the Library of Congress, which was an incredible venue to hear a discussion about these topics for her new book, Recoding America. And it's the same thing where you know, policy formation uh, is the varsity sport in Washington, D.C., and uh, implementation delivery uh, isn't always uh, as much of a focus. You you explain the why. So who's the audience for this book? Who, who do you hope will pick up bridge builders,
3: uh, and and what do you hope that they might take away from it? We actually spent a lot of time thinking about this as we started writing the book, and we, uh, we tried to do a few things here. The first is that this, these are not a set of, of pie-in-the-sky ivory tower prescriptions. Every single one of the propositions we developed, we developed by watching somebody who had figured out how to do something important. And so part of the audience that we have in mind is the collection of, of managers out there who are saying, you know, I've got a tough problem, and is there any way to be able to get through this? And the answer is, well, well, yes, because we've already figured out that some people have figured out how to do that. So they are proven lessons based on other managers that I think managers across government can pick up and even i think people in the private sector who find themselves working with government so that's important and then in addition to that we have an audience in mind for both researchers and and future public servants and colleges and universities as well we put actually two appendices in the book one is a syllabus so that somebody says this is interesting how can i teach this and so we have a, a full syllabus for a course if somebody wants to pick it up and then the question is, how do I do this? And we have an appendix that has a 100-day guide for managers coming into new jobs and figuring out how to do that job well.
0: And and I would add a few other uh, individuals we're looking at. Uh, you know, For one, I think the legislative branch, uh, both staffers and, and lawmakers, one of the things that we focused on when we wrote if we could put a man on the moon and when we looked at over 75 case studies a number of years ago was what we call the design free design gap where you saw this big wall almost gap between policy design and implementation and where implementers weren't brought in enough in the policy design stage the legislative uh, bill drafting stage so that they could have Uh, policy that can actually be implemented and and now you have this much more complex system of implementing policy through a whole range of actors and if you saw uh, the recent legislation the big legislation whether it's the infrastructure act the inflation reduction act around climate or the competes act all of these really did involve um a lot of time and attention and resources going into the private sector and the huge amount of complexity in terms of implementation here. So that's another audience. And I would, I I also think that uh, the private sector is a big audience, both people who work with contractors and consulting firms and others who are working with governments, but also a lot of the people in organizations who are working on social impact, who are part of the purpose offices or citizen, um, corporate citizenship offices, who are really trying to make a big impact on the world. And uh, this helps them to understand how to work with government to achieve the sort of impact that they're trying to create.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, uh, Bill and Don. We have to pause here for our first break. Uh, Talking about bridge builders, the new book from Bill Eggers and Don Kettle. Uh, We'll be back after a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Federal News Network.
1: Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years.
2: Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're continuing our conversation about the new book, uh, Bridge Builders: How Government Can Transcend Boundaries to Solve Big Problems. And. As we continue on this discussion uh don i wanted to to have you explain this concept of of the vending machine government model and what is that uh how's that going for us uh and and we'll see why that's important as we continue through
3: our conversation this morning Uh, jason i i think it's it's not going real well and the problem is this uh we we tend to approach the process of government implementation as if it were a vending machine. I mean, and that's been the case, the model that we've had in our head for a long time. And it's still the model that I think dominates. And the idea is, well, when we want to do something, we put money in the top and we push the button of the program that we want and we wait for the programs to come out. And uh, turns out that sometimes that doesn't work real well. And so when the problems emerge and when we figure out we've got to make changes, then The instinct is to crawl inside the vending machine and try to tinker with it, but it's essentially a top-down model, which doesn't work anymore because as Bill said earlier, more and more and more of government in fact operates in a much more horizontal way. So the, the vertical vending machine mindset doesn't work at all for programs that in fact operate in this horizontal fashion. And as we started looking around, we asked ourselves, can you think of any government problem any social problem that matters that any one organization can control and the answer is we started looking around is no and we just we cannot find any government program that matters that in fact operates purely in a kind of vertical vending machines approach so if that's the case and if that creates problems because we're coming up problems with the wrong mindset then what could we do to try to solve that and the answer we've discovered as we started talking to people and looking at cases is that not only is government implementation increasingly horizontal, but it involves lots of different actors. In fact, it's much more like a symphony orchestra than it is a vending machine. And if you think about a symphony orchestra, what that does is it it brings experts together from violins and percussionists and people who are playing violas and cellos and bass and trumpets. And to make good music, you need to have good experts who come together, but play in a coordinated kind of way. And so that the problem not only is finding ways of making these horizontal systems work better, but finding ways of coordinating them. And so what we need increasingly are leaders who are essentially symphony conductors, who are, as we call them, bridge builders, who find ways of pulling all the different assets we need to solve problems together, so that they not only are brought together in a coordinated kind of way, but their work is synchronized very much like a symphony orchestra does.
0: And and I would add that the mental model piece is, is really important because if you have the wrong mental model, you're not going to come be able to come up with the right solutions. You're gonna be blind uh, to the kinds of possibilities and solutions that are possible. You know, an analogy, for what we're talking about is baseball. Um, Looking for decades, baseball scouts would rely on the instincts and experience to, and their experience to evaluate players and make decisions. Uh, They had a mental model and a picture of what a great baseball player should look like, Uh, size, strength, speed. And lots of terrific players were ignored because they didn't look the part or they didn't fit the mental model of the scouts. Then Billy Bean a Oakland A's came along with his data-driven approach, immortalized in Moneyball, which held that statistical analysis could provide a much more objective and accurate understanding of a player's value and looking at a different set of statistics that they had looked at before. And baseball and really all sports have never been the same since. And now there's a new, a different mental model for thinking about baseball players and thinking about sports and bringing in data. And that's what we really need in in government now to get over some of the implementation challenges and to deliver better than we've done
2: previously. I have a different question in mind than we planned for because what you guys have laid out kind of to me suggests that the players that we're putting on the field Uh, may not be you know what are we preparing them for what skills do they need Um, who's deciding you know what those skills are Do they benefit um, you know the the overall organization do they benefit the government writ large and was the machine designed to look for those those attributes in the first place Um, and so it seems like before we get to those questions of organizational design, you're suggesting we should focus on the skills of these people who are bridging the gaps between organizations uh, as the starting place, these bridge builders. Is that, uh, Jason, that
0: That's a brilliant question, I think. And it's so important here. Uh, so w- if you think about what are some of the characteristics, what are some of the skills that are needed? Bridge builders see beyond organizational boundaries. They break down silos to improve outcomes. They can forge unity from diversity. They, they understand the different sectors well enough to seek mutual advantage. Uh, and in fact, in a HBR article a number of years ago, they called these tri-sector athletes, people who have been in the private sector, nonprofit sector, maybe foundations and public sector who are able to bridge those boundaries really well between sectors because they understand them. And they're able to align incentives to achieve shared goals. And, you know, we think it's probably the most essential skill set for leaders and managers at all levels of government today. And there are some agencies that we can learn from. We call them catalyst by design agencies where they recruit individuals and train them. And their performance evaluations are based on their skills in this area, and they have specialized uh specialized jobs that look at things like market sensing and different technologies and those are agencies like darpa like nasa um and some local agencies where they really really focus on this bridge building element and it becomes part of the organizational culture and it's a big part of who they recruit if you become a darpa program manager which i think is one of the best jobs you could have in all of government You really need to have that understand because you're going to be working with technology companies, you're going to be working with academia, you're going to be working with uh, research organizations in government. And so, that ability to go across these different organizations to find these like breakthrough innovations is really key. So, they focus on that. And we really think that this is a core. Uh, skill for so many people in government now, and maybe we need something like a job series uh, for around partnerships, and that OPM has that we need to really focus much more in terms of our training and learning on this set of skills.
3: And let me give uh, another example. This one at the at the local level. Uh, one of the things that is a stunning case is that in Houston they succeeded in reducing homelessness by 63% over the course of about five years. As we talk about trying to find ways and strategies of solving this problem across the country, 63%. How did they do this? And the answer is that they put together a coalition, it's actually the Houston Coalition for the Homeless, and it has, believe it or not, uh, more than 100 different organizations that are involved. And going back to the metaphor of the symphony orchestra, the we looked around, the typical symphony orchestra has 70 to 100 players. Here's a, a symphony far more complex than anything that anybody would dare put on stage. But in fact, what they did was to tie all these organizations together by identifying which assets they brought to the problem, how to try to match the people experiencing homelessness to the problems that they needed to have solved and the people who could solve them. And then working all of this together with a symphony conductor The bridge builder who succeeded in weaving all these all these different units together and doing what we also talk about in the book which is the importance of using data as the connecting language and so this is this is not only an important skill it's a skill that's proven to produce results but it's also a skill that is built taught uh, can be learned can be taught and can be picked up through experience and can be uh, trying to can be generated throughout government because This is the kind of thing that we need to try to solve the problems that we've got. One of my other favorite cases is that we talk about the the problem of trying to figure out what to do about migrants who are coming into the country. What happens when they get three blocks past the border and then need food and shelter and efforts to try to navigate the paperwork and all the other issues that come along with that. And it turns out that that's a system that there's a federal agency in charge of, uh, of refugee resettlement that's got 150 employees trying to deal with a problem that has people numbering in the tens of thousands. So, how can this possibly work? And the answer is that it's through a, a combination of nonprofit organizations, faith based organizations, some for profit organizations as well, all of which are woven together to try to solve these problems.
2: I'm torn on, you know, is it the people that you're looking for? that are unique is it the skills is it the mindset is it the context around a problem because it seems like you almost need some magical combination like you found in whoever spearheaded i imagine the, the the effort that you shared in houston and and so kind of i'm thinking or i'm wondering what is the most challenging principle of bridge building to put into practice and and how have you seen effective leaders kind of overcome
3: those challenges and the biggest problem, I think, is that people too often come at complex problems with this vending machine mindset, with a kind of vertical approach that I'm I'm the agency, I'm in charge, out of my way, or uh, here's what I'm going to do, or I create silos that at least I, I stay in my lane, manage my part of the problem, but don't allow this network to try to come together. And that's the, the core problem in all this. Uh, One of the things that we have in so many cases is a tremendous amount of technical expertise, but the problem more often than not is weaving them all together to be able to make all this work. Uh, Sometimes you've got the assets, but you've got the difficulty of finding the ways to do this. Another one of my favorite stories is that on the morning of 9-11, there were something like 500,000 people who were trapped in the southern tip of Manhattan and they were caught between the collapsed buildings and the Hudson River and New York Harbor. And the problem is how to try to get them out of there. And there was a Coast Guard Lieutenant who came forward and found a way to manage a, a network of, of ferries, of cruise boats, of dinner ships, of of small little pleasure craft, of private boats, Coast Guard boats, and a whole collection of different assets. And the, the largest previous evacuation that we know of, of course, is is Dunkirk, where it was around 400,000 soldiers that took days. Uh, here's a lieutenant in the Coast Guard who managed to do Dunkirk in an afternoon. He found a way to try to bring all those people out and to get them to where they needed to go. So it was a matter of assets that we had, but also leadership that was essential. And without that leadership, we would have had uh, another catastrophe on that unfortunate day.
0: And uh, I would just add, uh, Jason, one of the things we hear in a lot of our talks and uh, in the many, many interviews we did around uh, obstacles is around uh, legislative obstacles in terms of siloed budgets, uh, regulatory constraints on fund transferability, limited flexibility in the funding, and kind of a lack of incentives to collaborate Uh which can narrow people's efforts. And so we really looked at what are some ways of addressing those issues. And what we've seen around the globe, we've seen more issue-focused funding initiatives that multiple agencies can draw on to tackle wicked problems. We've seen the emergence of new governance models to oversee shared funding programs. Uh, we've seen interagency funding mechanisms uh, to address common challenges across agencies, uh, like the cap goals at the federal level and greater funding authority delegated to local and regional governments. Uh, for the US federal government, uh, I think a great example is the technology modernization fund that was established in 2017, is it, which well, supports federal projects to modernize technology and make them more equitable, secure, and user-centric. It's, it's invested over five hundred million dollars in thirty-three projects across eighteen federal agencies, and they've they've had a big impact in terms of improving data protection, strengthening cybersecurity across silos, and the twenty twenty-one American Rescue Plan gave that an additional one billion dollars. Uh, And they're funding things like life events approaches, which go across agencies and across levels of government. And when you you look at a lot of the major priorities of the Biden administration, they're whole of government approaches, whether it's around climate change or equity. And we need more funding mechanisms and governance mechanisms for these cross-agency, cross-sector sort of approaches to help overcome that, which is one of, I think, the
2: biggest obstacles to this. Yeah, no, I think that that's a really important point, particularly if you think about kind of the disconnect uh, between the incentives at the organizational level, say you're an agency versus what the president's asking you versus say you're a career executive who has a program you're responsible for. You know, you can't be responsible for everything. We've got to figure out how to tie these things together to focus on those outcomes and delivery. As we've discussed, we've got a pause here for our second break. um, And we'll return to our discussion with Bill Eggers and Don Kettle after a word from our sponsors. You're listening to FedTalk on Federal News Network.
1: Shaw, Bransford, and Roth.
3: One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative,
1: executive. Judicial. sb employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for
2: corporate clients.
1: Executive.
2: Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed manager and Fed agent.
1: Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government.
2: Online at shawbransford.com. sb client-focused, results-driven welcome back you're listening to fed talk on federal news network i'm here with bill Lagers and don kettle authors of the new book bridge builders how government can transcend boundaries to solve big problems we're entering the second half of our our discussion and i, I wanted to just pick back up right where we left off um, and to ask you guys about silos um, the book discusses breaking down silos in government with, between the sectors Can you share with us some of the strategies that you've seen for doing this uh bill maybe we'll start with you
0: sure i'll i'll go through maybe two or three and then let Don come in the 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 first one is we discussed a little bit but it's so important we have to tackle the funding silos uh isolated funding silos really can stymie innovation and Dismantling those silos uh, can be hard and frustrating and slow, but as I pointed out earlier, we are seeing examples in the U.S. and all over the world for doing so. The second thing I would talk about would be the data sharing chasm. We really need to cross that. Uh, uh, smart technology is a very common place. Generating data is never before and the public sector, vast amounts of data which if used to its potential can really provide agencies with greater insights to make informed decisions and what we need now is to break down the kind of barriers to data sharing across government and into the sectors and tapping into other data sources really to drive innovation and the houston example of homelessness that don talked about the data piece was absolutely critical because they designed a data system that over hundred providers could have access to and they could see in real time, each individual, what sort of services they'd receive, what sort of service they might need and what's their housing needs and so on and so forth. So they had a unified view of that. So the data piece is the second one. The third one I would talk about in terms of workforce, we talked about skills before uh, but I think increased agility is also really important here. Um, we're starting to see agencies embracing more flexible models, uh, more fluid workforce models, such as internal talent marketplaces, like we've seen at NASA and EPA and in the military, gig work, on-demand talent. Uh, we're seeing leaders starting to replace traditional public talent models, which include all these detailed job descriptions and positional requirements and moving towards skills-based approaches at the state level. We're even seeing a variety of states now have eliminated their requirement that you need a college degree to actually work in government and I think we're going to need to embrace talent management practices to support more of this hybrid work at the same time, but also to really uh, encourage that people want to move across sectors, having secondments, spending some time in government. We've seen with 18F and U.S. Digital Services, a lot of success with people doing tours of duty in government uh, and then moving back into the private sector or sometimes staying there, but much more fluidity in the workforce piece is the third way of starting
3: to break down these silos. And one of the things that, that pulls it all together is the is the focus on mission and focus on outcomes. It's, it's one thing, even to pursue all the strategies that Bill laid out, which are critically important to try to, to break down the barriers and the walls of the silos, but then what do you do when you've succeeded in doing that? And the, the thing that we've discovered time after time is that what succeeds in, in producing success is a focus on what it is that the shared mission is among all these different organizations. Uh, there's a, another great story that uh, happened on the morning of 9-11. One of the other stories that people don't know much about, which is the response at the Pentagon, where the, the lead FBI agent, Arrived eight minutes after the plane hit the Pentagon and succeeded in surrendering control of the scene to the chief of the Arlington County Fire Department. Uh, In what movie does that ever happen? And the answer is that it happened in a way to try to achieve the, the most effective response to what was going on there, because what was going on there was an enormous fire where people needed to be rescued. It turns out that the people involved had created a pre existing network of trust because they had drilled. 48 hours in advance about what to do if anything really bad happened. They never imagined that it would be a plane crashing into the Pentagon, but they had practiced on what it is that they would do. They trusted each other. They knew each other. And they'd established a basic rule that whatever it is that goes on that involves us involves all of us and whoever it is, who has the, the prime capacity that's needed at the time is the organization that will have the lead. And so the, the movie that, Never possibly could have been shot. The, the this the lead FBI agent arrives at the scene eight minutes after and says to the fire chief, "You're in charge." Is something that happened because they created the focus on mission. They created pre-existing relationships of trust, and they found ways of focusing on the outcome that they needed to accomplish, which was finding ways of putting out the fire and rescuing the people on the inside. So it's not only a matter of creating the kind of new incentives that Bill talks about but also establishing that what really matters is a focus on mission and creating these pre-existing relationships of trust that become the basis for the ongoing success that we want to try to accomplish with complex government programs.
2: Well, I like that you talk about trust, which is so critical, and the point that I heard that you say is that the folks on the inside needed to trust each other so that they could uh, work across boundaries so that they could serve those on the other side of that equation better, and you know the the three buckets that that Bill laid out of where we need to think more horizontally around funding the money, uh, around data and workforce seem like some of those traditional barriers, especially in the federal government, to collaboration and uh, working together, because there isn't that trust necessarily. There's the I don't think that you're going to develop these people. Or spend this money as well as i can you know for my program or my mission how do we overcome that particularly in the federal level particularly between
3: career and political appointees yeah it's it's a tough 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 problem but the the first point that we want to make is that uh this is a book that is fundamentally optimistic it's fundamentally optimistic because it's it's written essentially on the backs of the people who have already figured out how to do this there are to be sure, enormous structural problems that we have, and there are basic policy changes that we need to do differently, but in, on top of everything else, though, there really is an enormous amount of, of elbow room that managers have to use common sense and a focus on existing tools to try to achieve the the missions and the outcomes that they want so that uh, it's it really is essential to understand that this is not a matter of, of waiting till all these problems are solved till we can try to get at this. Uh, I chaired a, a panel for the National Academy of Public Administration a couple of years ago where we looked at the issue of civil service reform and we spent a lot of time talking about the barriers to trying to engage in kind of sensible mission-based improvements to the capacity of government. But one of the things I did is a kind of, of, of side game kind of coffee table conversation at every meeting that we had where we had experts come in and they said how, how many of the problems that you face that you understand uh, can we solve through administrative action and the response was somewhere between 50% and 95%. 95% was a little bit ambitious but the consensus was that 75% of what we need to do we can do within the existing rules if only we use the common sense approach, and a focus on the kind of goals we're seeking to accomplish. And so there are, on the one hand, important problems that we need to solve administratively, structurally, in terms of regulation and budgets, but managers have a tremendous amount of flexibility within the existing system to be able to move forward. And one of the things we try to do in the book is to lay out the strategies that can be done without having to wait for Congress finally someday, some century, to pass the kinds of things that we think need to be done. And I, I think a, a key element of the
0: trust uh, issue uh, is is simply listening. Um, you know, when we profiled Chief Dale McPhee, uh, the Edmonton police chief, uh, who really focused on trust with the community when he became police chief, and he went on a listening tour and he, he went into a lot of communities where that they didn't have any trust. Uh, it would been severed over time. And he said, he said he was sorry for some of the things the police department had done. And he listened, they made changes. And it was really important because he repaired that trust. And so then when the George Floyd protests occurred, he had had already built that community trust and they were able to move forward around different reforms. Uh, And so you build trust during good times. And imagine if every political appointee spent their first couple months going on a listening tour and talking to senior civil servants and really understanding all the issues and problems. That would go a long way. I also think you want to identify what are some of the pain points and really understand the different perspectives of stakeholders. So when uh, the Department of Veteran Affairs, when they reimagine the veterans' experience, uh, they really wanted to understand what really mattered to veterans, what was working, what wasn't working. They engaged them in conversations about how the experience could be improved, and they were able to build so much more trust than they had previously, and measure it. Uh, they had a really, really sophisticated measurement system to look at trust over time. And they did it from a longitudinal st- standing over the course of a number of years. And lastly, I would say it's important to build bridges with diverse groups of stakeholders. Uh, uh, for the 2020 census, which we profile in the book, they tapped into a huge ecosystem of tribal, state, and local governments, as well as more than 400,000 national and grassroots partners who could advocate on its behalf. And no organization was treated as too small or too unimportant. And in fact, um, the one of the leaders of this, Zach Schwartz, talked about how the barbershop around the corner from him even put up a census sign. And so they really focused on that diversity of stakeholders and the, and really engaging those sort of community groups, and churches and other organizations who had the trust of the community to help them to send their message and to get their message out.
3: And there's an important lesson for trust in all this. We, we see all the polls that suggest that people just don't trust the government to do the right thing. And the, the, those high level polls are really tough to try to move. People, people don't trust institutions. They don't trust Congress. But on the other hand, as we've discovered, the that's at the wholesale level that it's very difficult to move those issues of trust at the retail level by doing the kinds of things that Bill laid out that's possible for government managers to build trust with the community and to try to provide assurance that the problems that they have will be solved. And so that it may be difficult to try to get people to trust Congress, but by a Effective management that focuses on solving people's problems, it turns out to be possible at the retail level to build trust from citizens in the kinds of things that they want and expect government to do.
2: Yeah, and I would add to that some uh, research that was just released uh, recently by the Partnership for Public Service, uh, part of their series of research on trust. They're digging into this more granularly, like you said, Don, Don, and if you ask at the macro level, uh about government you know not so good but when you get into those individual programs and especially when you ask about career civil servants much more positive much more favorable and i think that that really highlights to me the importance of the storytelling about when things do work in the people behind using the discretion using their intelligence using their networks uh, to figure out how to deliver for the public, because at the end of the day, that's why they're motivated to show up as public servants, and that's what they try to do. Uh, and sometimes we just put innumerable, innumerable barriers in their way. Uh, we've got to pause here for our final break. You're listening to Fed Talk
1: on Federal News Network.
2: Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering our last segment of the show, talking about the new book *Bridge Builders: How Government Can Transcend Boundaries to Solve Big Problems* with the authors. Um, and I wanted to just bring us right back in, and, and Bill, ask you a question about some recent research that Deloitte and the Senior Executives Association published that looked specifically at the the skills and the competencies of public sector leaders to do just these things that, that we've been talking about here today, uh, collaborating and bridge building. Can you tell us a little bit more about the findings there?
0: Sure, Jason. And we polled uh, close to uh, 300 uh, senior civil servants in the federal government and really fascinating findings. And I think a, a lot of reason for optimism and and also just we, we received 17 pages of uh, comments and recommendations for what can be done to even improve things so first off on the good news uh almost three-fourths of respondents said that cross-sector collaboration can help achieve mission outcomes we had nearly 20 percent said that they were involved in more than 10 collaborations simultaneously which was surprising and encouraging uh, One of the things that was interesting is uh, 62% said they spend less than 10% of their week working with state and local governments. And with all the new legislation, that's going to have to increase. We found a much higher percentage said that they work with the private sector. Um, One of the major obstacles, challenges that they've noted was was 60% said it was challenging or highly challenging to hold partners accountable for outcomes. And the accountability piece is a very difficult one when you have dozens or more of players involved in trying to create an outcome. And we really do need to move towards more of a horizontal accountability systems as opposed to the vertical ones that we have today. Um, The other thing that we found at the In the survey, it was only only 30%, about one-third or so, considered themselves at the leading stage of maturity in managing these different areas of cross-sector collaboration. So there's still a long ways to go there. But uh, the, the good news part is that uh, the overwhelming majority said that leadership support and autonomy are also very key areas for enhancing cross-sector collaboration. Tell them what needs to be achieved, and then we can uh, we can achieve this. And I, I we mentioned NASA and DARPA, and they both do such a good job of that, and really letting individuals all the way throughout the organization create these collaborations. And in terms of the key skills that they identified the top three were thinking strategically uh developing trustworthy relationships and creating a culture of collaboration and the the culture piece came up time and time again we talk a lot about that in the book how do you create that sort of culture but they also identified a shared culture as the number one ranking uh element for accountability uh, when we asked what type of accountability mechanisms are most uh, helpful, they said culture, performance-based agreements, a customer-focused, and interestingly, uh, some of the more formal mechanisms, whether it's kind of uh, supervisory oversight, uh, long-term evaluation, congressional oversight, uh, short-term performance management systems ranked a lot lower. So it was these elements of create the right incentives for us to do this, embed it into our performance agreements, make sure we have a customer user-based focus, and let's create a shared culture around collaboration. Those tended to be the, the key things that we heard from senior civil servants.
2: Thanks so much, Bill, for sharing some of those super interesting kind of findings and takeaways from uh, the role of cross-sector collaboration in federal agencies uh, from Deloitte and the Senior Executives Association. And it's it's funny as I heard you talking about those, I was struck by our conversation about the uh, the, the the vending machine government and. What kind of pickle are we putting people into by asking them to do one thing, but uh, telling them to do another um, within within this system? And uh, I know that your book contains a a, a recommendation or a blueprint for a a 100 day bridge building plan for executives. It seems like it's kind of an antidote or uh, some strategies to help folks work through
3: this. And I'm hoping you could you could share some details about that, Don sure and one of the things that we we lay out here is uh congratulations you've got a new job now what do you do and the the usual piece is coming in and uh, laying out a whole bunch of new policies and trying to find ways of shaking up the bureaucracy that you're in the process of trying to lead but it turns out that's the, usually the, the worst thing to do at the beginning and we lay out a, a dozen principles that we think new executives and and the first hundred days ought to do beginning with the first just. Just deciding on maybe the five most important things you want to try to accomplish. Don't boil the ocean, figure out what it is you need to do strategically, but then also recognize that you're going to be catching up with a moving train because the the agency is already moving ahead. You need to figure out what kind of success that you want to have and what success would look like. But, But most importantly, understand that you can accomplish a lot, but not on your own. It means going out, surveying the people that you're going to need to work with and then creating incentives and establishing partnerships with those folks, and, and then not only building the partnerships, but creating a data system that creates a, a language that connects all the pieces together. And so what we have here is a 12-point is a plan where we've discovered on the basis of what successful executives have done that new executives can accomplish as they step in. And as Bill points out, we have a problem and on both fronts. We have a problem sometimes with Uh, with people coming into Republican administrations from the private sector who don't understand the complex government system that they're walking into. We have people on the Democratic side who often come in either as attorneys or as policy experts who focus much more on either process or on big policy ideas. And both of them, by that approach, tend to have the wrong mental model coming in to try to achieve the results that they want. So what we want to try to do is to lay out this game plan that we think will be much more effective. And we know that it's going to be more effective because it's what it is that we've seen successful executives actually accomplish.
2: It's so interesting that in neither of these models do uh, political leaders come in focusing on culture, uh, even though we know that that culture eats policy. Uh, as, yep. as, uh, as Jen Palka discussed in her new book and and I think those who've been around this space for long enough uh, come to learn uh, we can be our own worst enemies if, if if we don't address these incentives and these system issues.
3: Yeah, uh, one of the things that, that we've found is that, that organizations can create the culture to support what we're talking about the the effort that uh, that Lieutenant Mike Day did in in New York. With Dunkirk in an afternoon, didn't just spring out of his own head. It came out of the culture that the Coast Guard had established, going back to the Exxon Valdez spill in Alaska, where they created a, a new strategy for trying to attack problems that then became the basis for what it is that they learned to try to respond on 9-11, that then became the foundation for what Admiral Thad Allen did in New Orleans, and then that became, in turn, a learning objective that allowed them to try to respond to the explosion of the drilling platform in the Gulf, and it continues the way in which the, the Coast Guard operates. They've created a culture that focuses on not only uh, just trying to find ways of, of, of driving their boats around, but understanding what they're trying to accomplish, understanding that they can't do it alone that they need to try to build partnerships. And they do that by focusing on mission. And there are stories that just are are flooding out of the sides that focus on, on how it is that an organization can create this culture and create a culture that changes over time, that continues to sharpen and refine its efforts to try to be able to do this. And it's, it's happened through uh, all of what it is that, uh, that the Coast Guard has done over the years. And I, a small footnote on this, uh, Lieutenant Day is now Admiral Day and he's in charge of the Coast Guard's efforts in the uh, in the whole Pacific Ocean. And so what this really says is that uh, this is maybe for some organizations a, a frightening kind of approach to use, but some organizations have found ways of creating internal incentives to reward the people who do this. And here we have a, a person who has gone from a lieutenant to an admiral and is in the process of spreading that culture more broadly throughout the Coast Guard.
2: I love that story, Don, and it, I think That Coast Guard example really exemplifies kind of a dichotomy uh, and a central theme of the book where no single organization can manage and control the biggest challenges or the unexpected challenges that they might need to uh, face, but that a blended government is an ideal vehicle for for delivering and developing public value. And so you gave an example in a specific organization, how they've have they focused on this and how it's affected their mission Thinking about this at scale, how can blended government be an ideal vehicle for developing public value, and how does it differ from the traditional approaches to government management?
0: Sure, and I'll, I'll provide an example or two there because that's what we 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 really believe is important: is how do you how do you do this at scale, and how do you do this organization wide, or Uh, for whole city government or state government. And we do have examples. So when John Hickenlooper was mayor of uh, Denver and then governor of Colorado, he's of course now a senator, he really made public-private partnerships and bridge building a central component of all of his major initiatives, from workforce development to reducing homelessness uh, to a variety of other areas. And he he basically focused on how do we raise money from foundations to do these things? How do we bring in the different sectors? And he was able to raise over $275 million, $295 million over his time to do this. And his approach was really an unwavering determination to work across the sectors, finding points of mutual advantage for all of his major policy initiatives. One of the things uh, that uh, Senator Hickenlooper talks about is when you look at the incentives, which we've talked about, government is very different than the private sector, but in both cases, people generally might start with a narrow self-interest, starting with what they think they really need to get out of each negotiation. But when you get different voices at the table, it's generally not that difficult to show people that they can benefit from a broader variety of outcomes. And once you get that alignment, they start to overlap and that's where these transactions can happen in the private sector and where you create real change and progress. And we saw the same thing in New York City where Michael Bloomberg, um, who had, of course out of the private sector and also was a major philanthropist. So, you know, really good example of tri-sector athlete and public private partnerships became a central part of all of his major initiatives over the course of his career. And those are two examples of doing this at scale and very, very successful. And the, the last one I would point out uh, because I did write a book called If We Can Put a Man on the Moon uh, was at NASA when uh, James Webb uh, was the first NASA administrator who answered uh, John F. Kennedy's seemingly really impossible call to put a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s? And he may have been the most indispensable contributor because he had to lead NASA through the political, administrative, and technical challenge of landing a, a, a man-moon mission. And he had, before he assumed leadership of Project Apollo, he had actually been in government and President Truman's Bureau of the Budget. He also served as served as a senior executive at private companies. So he had deep experience in the public and private sectors. So what made him the quintessential bridge builder. Um, he, to manage the Apollo program and involved over 20,000 industrial firms, 200 university labs, 400,000 public and private workers required Webb to interact with politicians, the press, NASA employees, private contractors, academia, and the public. And he did all of this very effectively. And
2: America put a man on the moon,
0: in in that's because of Webb's bridge building leadership.
2: Awesome, love it. Thanks for sharing those examples. Thank you so much, Bill Eggers and Don Kettle, authors of the new book "Bridge Builders: How Government Can Transcend Boundaries to Solve Big Problems." Uh, we've had an awesome conversation here on Fed Talk. Unfortunately, that's all the time we've got for. Uh, today. Can you let folks know if they want to find a copy of the book where they can do that?
0: Absolutely. We can find it on all of the major uh, online sites from uh, Amazon to Barnes and Nobles and other sites. We also have a website uh, that will also focus on what are some of the events that we're doing, some of the speeches, and we'll also look at some things that are published, and that's bridgebuildersbook.com. And uh, we hope you uh, go out and get a copy of the book.
2: Thanks so much. Thanks for being with us here on FedTalk. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm, uh, Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great rest of the day.